0: You are listening to Lone Star Community Radio on 104.5 KCZWLP Conroe and 106.1 KZCCLP Conroe and worldwide on IRLoneStar.com. Hi, welcome to the Legal Connection Show. I'm Tony Collins, an attorney in uh, Montgomery County, and the Legal Connection Show is a Uh, a show that airs on Tuesdays from noon to one um, and we cover various legal topics and um, you can catch us on FM 104.5 or FM 106.1 they're the Conroe FM band if you're listening right now uh, are you know want to uh, uh, listen if you're listening right now And you lose the band uh, because you're driving down 45. You can catch us on Facebook at TheLegalConnectionShow.com. Or you can go to IRLoneStar.com and go to The Legal Connection Show and all of our past shows, including this one will be on there for you to listen to. You can also go to, um, you can, we're on YouTube. So if you just put The Legal Connection Show on and then whatever topic you're looking for, you can catch a repeat of the show that way. Okay, so uh, today we're going to have kind of a fun show. It's going to be um, uh, consumer questions—just various questions that I get from different people that uh, over a broad spectrum that I get enough that I thought I might repeat them today. So, uh, just uh, you know, food for thought. I'm just going to ask you questions. I mean, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask the questions that people have asked me, and give you that answer. So it's going to be sort of a a lanyap of of uh, different topics today. Um, if we have time, I'm going to go over some immigration issues, uh, U vis- visas, uh, a, a one of the many visas in the immigration uh, uh, sphere through the Department of Homeland Security. That is a way to have a legal status here. If, uh, and, and actually, I believe you can work towards citizenship. I'm uh, becoming a little bit more of an expert on ICE uh, situations, and my email is ICE at AOL.com if anybody has any legal questions about that. But I'm becoming, uh, I'm specializing more in immigration issues. Uh, now, which is a little bit odd because uh, it seems like the borders are completely open right now. But for those people that did come over legally and on visas and still have or have been caught uh, by the various law enforcement agencies and now are on the radar, uh, they still uh, will need representation in the immigration courts. And so I'm kind of looking to that now. And we'll go over some of those topics later on today. OK, so. Um, one of the uh, – uh, there's a series of questions that I get. They're, like, frequently asked questions, and I'm just going to go over them, all right? Uh, one is when you uh, – a person has a, uh, an adult child living at home uh, or has come back home after college, um, or for whatever reason, they're living at home again, but they're adults. And so the question uh, in this particular scenario – A son is the mother's tenant. And the question that she had for me is, um, actually it was one of the siblings. Um, One of my brothers has lived with our mother for about a year. He pays her a small amount each month to help with expenses. Things are not working out and my mother wants him out. Uh, Can she just throw him out? And uh, you can't just throw out your child once they're living there because that is their residence. Um, that's a situation that's very common these days with kids coming home to live with their parents, whether it's because it's economic, most of the time it's economic because they just don't want to pay, um, they, they can't, they, they can't, they're not mature enough to make it on their own or perhaps they're trying to save money. Um, I think in the, latter case it's a great idea to live at home until you save money but what happens is they come home and they're not saving money it's just they're back in junior high again and they're taking full advantage of living with their parents as though you know everything's for free and they may be there until they're uh 40 which is not something that you want so anyway um in my opinion uh the brother is a tenant and your mother uh the mother in the situation is his landlord uh, this means that she must give him proper notice to vacate, and has no legal right just to throw him out. I suggest that she give him 30 days' written notice to leave. If he still does not leave, she can file a forcible entry and detainer action in just um, in in the justice court in the J.P. courts uh, to have him evicted, and that's an eviction case. When you go, f- the way that that works is. Uh, The mom can go to the J.P. court that is is covered by wherever the residence that he's staying at is located, if it's not her home. And you can go to the, uh, you can Google Montgomery County uh, J.P. court jurisdiction, and if you put your address in, it tells you which J.P. court that you file in. Um, there's actually forms, most of them are available online, where you can actually write in the the facts that you need to file the petition. It's free to file in J.P. court, um, but you have to have them served, legally served. Um, there's some rules with that, but generally, if... Uh, a person over 18 that's not an interested party can just hand them the papers. You have to have a citation to go with it because on top of that petition that you prepared that's been entered by the court, um, the citation says um, you have been sued, even an eviction is a suit, you have been sued and you have 20 days, uh, it's the first Monday after 20 days to respond or uh, the mother could get a default judgment or whoever. And so you have to ask the court to prepare the citation. I don't think in JP court there's any fee, but even in district court and in county court, it's only $8 to get a citation prepared. So the citation is just a little cover that goes on top of the petition that the process server or anyone over 18, which is gonna serve as the process server, can hand to that person. Now, there's a lot of rules with evictions. Um, You can hand it to them in person. Um, if you go to the Texas Property Code, uh, or if you just Google Texas Property Code evictions, or go to TexasLawHelp.com, you have to follow strictly the rules in giving notice. If they're, uh, if they're, if they're dodging service, um, or if you want to serve them without actually handing it to them, which would be a little bit weird if they lived at home, uh, you post it to the inside of their door. If uh, you can mail it to them, certified mail. Or you can hand it to them in person and have the process server fill out the back, uh, uh, fill out the citation. It's the bottom of the form. Um, The JP court, if you ask them to, will uh, uh, provide the opportunity for you to have a sheriff serve them. I always take that option. I don't like to really mess with that. I'd rather have proper service through the sheriff. It costs eighty dollars though, and then they will. they will usually take it to their door, knock on the door to hand it to them and, and various other things, uh, various other methods to have them served properly. Um, if you want to do it on the cheap, though, then go to the Texas Law Help or just uh, Google the Texas Property Code because the judge in the eviction case will ask you how were they served, and you're going to have to explain that. If you mess up and you don't serve them right, if you don't post it right or uh have a process server who's the proper person server right. If you don't give, if, give them a three-day notice uh, before you actually serve them, if you don't follow these rules exactly, then you will, your eviction will get thrown out. So um, it seems like a pretty simple process. It just has to be strictly followed. Uh, the best advice I can give you if you've never done an eviction and you're trying to get your kid out of the house Give them 30 days' notice if there's not an actual lease. Um, you still have to give them – thirty I uh, well, actually give them a three-day notice. But even on, on an oral lease, I would give them 30 days' notice to – start behaving or doing whatever it is that you need to do. Usually with kids, you can tell them. But um, if you really want them to leave and you're really trying to make a point, then go to Texas Law Help. It gives you like a step-by-step process on how to evict somebody. And they've actually got the forms there. They've got the citation forms. They have everything on Uh, TexasLawHelp.com. TexasLawHelp.com is a... um, I believe it's associated with the state bar, and it's just a its its a wealth of information for people that just want to do something on their own that's sort of small like this. You don't want to actually hire an attorney to uh, evict your own child, but you're trying to get their attention, so perhaps they'll get a job or go to school or behave or do whatever they do. Now, um, a lot of times kids are living at home because they – Um, have alcohol problems, they have drug problems, and maybe it's not the best idea to throw them out. It may be a better idea to try to get them some help. Um, If they're there and they're causing havoc with your family, though, or the other people that live there, then you have to go to Plan B. Um, The Montgomery County, uh, and I'm just going to go on a, a slight sidebar here. If, if, your child or your friend or a relative um, ends up in the criminal system in Montgomery County um, due to being picked up for a DWI or having been stopped and they had drug paraphernalia in their car or whatever. They've, they've got some kind of charge against them. And um, it's their first offense. Uh, they can get a pretrial intervention. We've talked about it in other shows, and you can Google that or you can uh, put that uh Tag word in the Legal Connection show, and you can find the show that we did on that, Um, or if they've got a habitual problem of of somehow, you know, wiggling their way out of of, of an actual DWI charge or actually getting them, um, they may need some help, and the Montgomery County courts have a mental health program, a mental health court, and they have a DWI court, And if it's their first DWI and they meet the criteria, they can get into the DWI court. Um, And it's a, it's, uh, um, how do I put this? It is almost like having to pay to go to a, um, a, like a, a halfway house or through a program, but it's funded by the, your tax. Uh, dollars, and I think that they're really, really good programs. They're monitoring the the person, whether they be, you know, 16 years old or 80 years old. Um, the The court program. These, if you fall into these courts and you're approved to be in this court and not in a regular misdemeanor court or a felony court, then you get into one of these programs where you get help. They they set you up so that you've got sort of an. Um, in fact, the um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous may be one of the programs that they incorporate with it, but um, I have a couple of clients that are that have been approved for these courts. Um, you have to apply for them. There's certain criteria before you qualify to get into them, but they're very, very good courts. So if you've got some issues with a child, family member, friend that's got um, substance abuse issues or even mental health issues like schizophrenia, bipolar, a major depression. And somehow they've wound up being um, having a charge against them, a pending charge. Then at that point, that's the cry for help that um, sort of is what uh, is the catalyst for the courts stepping in and helping you. So Montgomery County's got some really good programs. So just wanted to kind of show, throw that out there in case you've got a child, family member, friend that's got uh, that's not just at your house to make money or save money to go to school or doesn't have a place to stay, but they've got other underlying issues that are preventing them from being able to um, cut the umbilical cord. All right, next uh, question I get, oddly, I get this question a lot, is um, uh, can you marry your first cousin? Um, I know that Jerry Lee Lewis married his first cousin, and uh, there are a, a, lo- a number of celebrities that have married their first cousin. Um, I thought hillbillies did that, uh, you know, a lot of interbreeding. I will say that if you go back as far as Adam and Eve, of course, they procreated with their sisters and brothers because they were the first people. There was nobody else. Uh, but that was then. And I think that after if you do that for a long enough period, you get, uh, you know, and I'm not a, a doctor, but I think that's when you start getting um craziness in the bloodline like they do with the maybe some of the royals uh, way back in the day and the different uh, European dynasties, uh, which might explain a few things that are going on in China and Japan and, you know, where they have these dynasties where they don't uh, uh, move on and, and look outside the family. It seems to me that I remember that uh, Teddy Roosevelt, or one of our presidents married his first cousin, uh, but I have to look back into that. I just can't remember right now. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, the the question is, uh, is it legal to marry a cousin in Texas? Uh, and the the answer is that um, the law has recently changed that prohibits marrying your first cousin in Texas. You could. For a long time uh, but I believe that it was in night uh, uh, 2015 uh, uh, several years ago wasn't while I was in law school that they, uh, they passed a, a statute uh, passed a law that prohibited that and so the law that allows a person in Texas to marry first cousin has been changed under the new law you are prohibited from marrying a first cousin the new law does not take effect however until September 1st 2015 so this was a, a, a question and answer uh, from a while back so don't be running around marrying your first cousin in texas you might be able to do that in louisiana because i know jerry lee lewis did there i'm not sure if that's changed yet there um and i think if you marry your first cousin in louisiana uh through reciprocity texas will recognize it so um you just want to have a legal marriage here in texas all right co-signing is dangerous when you have a child sibling friend um, that ask you to uh, usually this happens in a situation where you've got boyfriend, girlfriend that aren't married uh, and one has got money but no credit, the other one has credit but no money. And so they they kind of work together on it. This happens all the time with houses where um, they're like, oh, you know we're not married yet, but this will be a great deal. And it always goes south and you've got the person that paid all the money but didn't have the credit wanting their, property bag and they can't because they both either own it on the title or there was a cosigner but uh to get back to the question um this in this particular situation uh the person bought a car and but could not afford the payments um uh, so here here's how the question went i bought a car and could not afford the payments i agreed to do a voluntary repossession now they are telling my father, who co-signed on the loan, that he owes over 3000 as the co-signer. Um, is this legal. So um, in this situation, my client um, uh, had the dad co-sign on the car, uh, telling the dad, no problem, you won't ever owe anything, you're off the hook, I just need to get the loan, just put your name on the dotted line, and, uh, and then you'll be done with it. You don't, you'll never have to look at me or the car again. I got this. I got this covered, right? And then they got caught behind and decided maybe the car didn't work, maybe they didn't like it anymore, maybe they got in some wrecks. Whatever the case may be, they decided that not they didn't make. They made a conscious decision whether it was because they couldn't afford it or not, not to pay these notes and not to borrow the money to pay the notes for the car. And the car dealership said, um, thank you, but no thank you. Your dad co-signed. We're going to the dad so he can pay up what you owe. Okay, so here is how the law works. If someone signs as a co-signer, he basically assumes the same responsibility as the person he signed for. And that goes whether it's a house um, appliances, car, whatever. If you co sign on it, you're taking responsibility. In other words, if you owe the money, your father also owes the money. After a repossession, voluntary or involuntary, the car is sold in the amount obtained at the sale is applied to the debt. If there is still a balance remaining, called a deficiency, you still owe the creditor. For an example, if you owe $12,000 and the car was sold for $9,000, you would still owe $3,000 in the deficiency. Because you owe the money, anyone who co-signed also owes it. I suggest that you ask for an accounting of how much was owed and how much was obtained at the sale to determine if there really is a a deficiency owed. If there is, you and your father are both equally responsible. So bear in mind that if you let your car go back and they sell it, so they pick it up, yeah, no problem, I'm going to give you the keys, It's it's a happy little voluntary deal. You can't rely upon the dealership selling it for what it's worth. It may sell at auction for something much less, and the person that wins is not you, and it's certainly not your dad. It's going to be the... the dealership because and the person that bought it for the low amount and they're they're probably related. There's probably some collusion there. The dealership may be buying it back for some low amount, not even what's reasonable. If that does happen though, you can go to JP court and say that this was they bought it for undervalue and try to show the connection. It's a lot of work, um, but uh, to go get back on track with this question. Um, If you are somebody that has credit and somebody that says, oh, please just co-sign for me on my bond, on my house, on my car, for the appliances, for whatever it may be, uh, do not co-sign unless you fully expect to be picking up where they left off because you're going to be stuck with that bill. And this happens a lot with bonds. Uh, There's a really, really high bond. You know, I do criminal defense, so I've I've got a lot of clients that I'm fighting to get their bond down, which goes to one little sidebar. If you... um, Are charged with a crime, and you haven't had the chance to hire an attorney yet, and there is a schedule, the statutory schedule bond amount, and it's something really high, and it's you're accused of something that you didn't do. a couple of things are gonna happen here. If the bond is 100,000 and you just happen to be independently wealthy, let's say it's a sexual assault, they seem to be the ones that that fall into this category the most, somebody's mad at somebody, you've got a teenager who's mad at their stepfather, so they make up a sexual assault. You've got a child custody battle, Uh, one parent or the other is uh, upset and trying to dig their their heels in or their claws in, and um, they make up uh, that when the child was over at the other person's house, a sexual assault occurred. This does happen, but in my experience, at least 50% of the time, it hasn't happened. And it's somebody that's manipulating the system so that they can um, win a case by uh, getting rid of the other person, by deportation, because of this, this accusation, something that is almost impossible to defend because there's only two people involved some kid that may not even be old enough to talk and somebody saying that they told them and uh, and then the defense attorney can't even talk to him because they're a child, or you've got a situation where um, an ex-girlfriend or, or, or whoever it may be, they're just mad at somebody they're trying to get you in trouble and they make a false allegation. The bond on sexual assaults are really, really high. And the police department won't mess around with something like that in this Me Too movement. They will uh, generally... Uh, will go ahead and uh, make the arrest, even if it's not, even if it happened months ago, they'll come back around and arrest you if you've got somebody that's a pretty good liar making up these stories uh, about an alleged sexual assault that didn't happen. And um, the DA will take the charge because DAs are... Uh, elected officials, um, ADAs, the assistant district attorneys, have a job to do, and nobody wants to take the chance that there really is a sexual predator out there, but it just may not be the person that's being accused, and so what happens is the bond gets set really high, and if you've got a lot of money, then you can pay the cash bond, and, and after the case is over, you get that money back. Could be years before this thing goes to trial. Could be six years before it goes to trial. So your money is sitting someplace like the sheriff's department um, and it's not collecting interest and it's just sitting there. No big deal if you got a lot of money, but my clients usually don't have a lot of money. And so um, what you have to do is you have to, uh, you want to argue for the bond to be reduced for the various reasons that this case is not legitimate and you're going to file a, uh, your attorney is going to file a, a uh, uh, you know maybe a grand jury hold go before the grand jury to see if they'll no bill it or motion dismissed because whatever evidence they have it's not legitimate or they got it illegally or you know you want DNA testing whatever it may be but you go in and before you pay the bond um, you might just have to sit in jail overnight or until the, the court can actually have a hearing and it's usually um, on the uh, the video. Uh, uh, it's Zoom right now, but but any anyway, rate, you, you have to get before a judge, and then you'll have your attorney argue to have the bond reduced if the bond is really high you want to wait it's worth the wait jail is not fun but whoever didn't like you knew they were going to get you all away for a little while um you want to have your attorney argue for a reasonable bond or a lower bond and then you can go to a bonding company and and you pay 10 percent of that bond unless you're not here legally uh, or the person that you're trying to bond out is not here legally and then it's usually 30 percent uh not just 10 percent, so it's much higher well to get back to the original question what happens is 30% of 100000 is still really high. Who has that kind of money? I mean, or who wants to put that, give that to a bonding company? Um, so, they before they'll give you a bond, you have to have some assets in the United States. Uh, and generally, the people that are being accused are, you know, at least my clients are 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, and they don't have that kind of money and they don't have any collateral. So, they'll ask their parents to co sign. Well, if you're on bond and you have these conditions and it's like don't meet or talk with the other person and usually it's their girlfriend that's made this false accusation and they've got them over a barrel and if they do anything wrong, they're going to say, oh, he – he, the no contact order was breached when they're the ones that are saying, come visit me. Um, if the the bond is is pulled or if the person leaves the country or if they don't show up, the co-signer, usually the parents or somebody – you know, I've made the mistake of co-signing even as the attorney before. I'll never do that again um, – they're stuck with that bond, and you've got to go find a bounty hunter, like dog the bounty hunter, to go find these people because you're going to be out that money. That full bond amount has to be paid. And so um, so that goes to don't co-sign for anything unless you expect or have the money to, to fund whatever it is you're co-signing for. In the case where uh, people co-sign on bonds, they'll lose their house. I mean, they usually put their house up. That's the collateral. The, the, whoever it is, if if you've got somebody that really doesn't care about you, it's some self-entitled kid or somebody that has to leave the country or or whatever it is that's made them decide that they've got to not show up for court, um, the person that co-signed is going to lose whatever the collateral was, and they're going to be holding the bag for it, and they may have a judgment against them too. So be very, very wary of co It's really dangerous. Okay, next question. Uh, my listener says, I went to rent an apartment. Even though I have excellent credit, the landlord asked for a security deposit of two months' rent. I have never had to pay more than one month's rent as a security deposit. Um, in fact, a lot of times you don't have to pay any deposit at all because they want you. Well, we have a housing, uh, they want your business. We have a house, a, a seller's I'm sorry a buyer's market right now um and I don't know so much for apartments because so many people with COVID weren't getting paid and then they had the um uh, the abatements moratoriums where you didn't have to pay rent if you filed for the COVID um affidavits uh saying that uh, you your rent was stayed and then you could go get it from one of these the agencies that had you know $15 billion, 2 billion whatever the amount of money was, the agencies were paying the rent for these people, and it's still going on. Actually, um, if you have a, a rent that was due in an apartment, and you uh, could lost your job, and or maybe you lied on this affidavit, if you filled out the affidavit saying that you know I meet this these five criteria, uh, and you know because I was affected by COVID. Uh, and I've also applied at one of the charitable agencies to get the rent paid for for me. If you go to court with that, and these moratoriums are still in, a, in effect, uh, I believe they still are in effect, um, then, then these charitable organizations will pay the back rent for you. And up to 15 months, it's kind of crazy. It's a scam for a lot of people that are just taking the money, um, but and not paying rent with it, they're just getting it direct. But there's crooks everywhere. But if you legitimately um, couldn't pay your rent, and you met all the criteria, you can go to the charitable organization, and you can't be evicted. Um, and even now, if the, the charitable organization hasn't funded yet, even though you've applied and you've done gone, you've done all the proper, uh, 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 you know, steps in the procedure to uh, to fall under the COVID rent payments. Uh, That is paid through these different charities, Um, the courts will stay the eviction for an additional 60 days, and then they continue to stay them, meaning that you won't be evicted. You get to stay in your place without having to pay rent if you've met this criteria. Um, What I found with the different evictions that I've been watching online, just kind of keep in the back burner while I'm doing other work, is that um, people have not paid rent for uh, going on two years ever since February of I want to say that actually these moratoriums didn't take effect until like April of 2019. But they haven't paid rent for a long, long time. And they're just using it as uh, this more the COVID as an excuse not to pay rent. The judges are now looking more closely at, with, every, with the job market opening up like it is, with them having to prove that they are sick or they have a family member that's sick. And uh, they're being a little bit more... Uh, harsh uh, and, and strict with allowing people to stay without paying rent, but you can still do that. So anyway, the answer to this question is, or the question was, is it legal for someone to charge me double uh, the deposit for rent? Okay, and the answer is, the landlord owns the apartment or the house, and he determines what the terms of the lease will be. If the landlord wants a large deposit or no deposit, this is his choice. The law does not regulate the amount of rent or of the security deposit, all the law requires that the landlord not discriminate based on race, sex, age, marital status, or religion. If you think the deposit is too high, let the landlord know. If he refuses to lower it, your options are to pay it, propose an alternative amount, or look for someplace else to rent. So, um, if, if you, however, uh, and that goes here, the, the exception is if they've They've not had a, if you can prove that a next door neighbor in this apartment complex or a friend of yours, let's say that they are, um, uh, you know, an older white woman, uh, and uh, not, not too old, let's say 40, not, so there's no age discrimination, and you come in with your two kids, uh, and you are a, uh, a transgender black person who's uh, 70 years old. And uh, you are Hindu. Uh, For any one of those reasons, um, if they deny you, you might be able to claim uh, because of sex, age, marital status, religion, or race that they didn't charge deposit for this other one and you're being discriminated against. You may win on that and you wouldn't have to pay deposit. You go to J.P. Court and it moves pretty quickly and maybe you can get around like that. If you've got that kind of time to do it, most people don't. Um, Okay, so. Um, another, uh, issue. And I wanted to kind of go over real, real quick is a uh, landlord's locking out tenants. Um, a lockout is not an eviction. And, uh, Some think it is a way to evict a tenant, but lockouts are really meant to make a tenant who is late with their rent talk to the landlord about the problems in a payment. Um, If a landlord changes the locks without first getting an eviction order from the court, they must give you a new key. So it's not prohibited. The landlord can lock you out, and when they lock you out just like if it was a child at home it's going to get your attention because you might just be avoiding the landlord so you don't have to talk to him at all but they have to give you proper notice for it and so if you go to the texas property code at chapter 92 there's it's a long chapter it's got a lot of provisions in it but you can kind of read through it it'll tell you what the provisions are but um here is the three limitations for a lockout. Um, if you are a landlord thinking about doing it or being a tenant that is not paying your rent and you want to see what the rules are, um, they can lock you out. If, if you owe rent, um, if your lease allows it and your landlord follows very strict notice requirements, um, as explained in the Texas Property Code, your landlord may be able to lock you out of your property, but your landlord must always give you a key. And access to your property upon request, your landlord needs to do repairs and are con- or no, I'm sorry, or construction, or if there's an emergency, he has to give you a key if you have to get in, like an emergency situation, like it's freezing outside, um, or you have abandoned your property. So um, the only three ways they can lock you out is if you owe rent and he's followed the strict guidelines for it, um, uh, if the uh, landlord needs to do repairs or construction. Um, he can lock you out to do that or if you abandon the property and you have to be able to prove that too. Most people don't get locked out. Uh, so the next question is, can my landlord lock me out for owing rent if my lease does not allow it? No. A landlord can change locks for failure to pay rent only if the lease says they can. So it needs to be in the lease so they can't do it. Also, the landlord still has to give you a key so you can get back in. Um, so they just have to tell you it's the way to get you to go talk to him. Uh, the next question is: Can my landlord remove the doors or refrigerator from the property to get me to leave? No, unless the landlord removes the items for needed the items for needed repairs, or replacement. Your landlord cannot remove a door, a window, an attic hatchway cover, or a lock, ha- latch, hinge, hinge hinge door uh, hinge pen doorknob or other mechanism attached to any of them um, so if you're a landlord don't go around doing that unless your lease allows for it and you still can't remove them you can only you, you can only change the uh, change the lock so and then make sure that they can access it with a the key um, uh, they also cannot remove furniture fixtures or appliances furnished by the landlord if the removal is for repair or replacement then the lock, doorknob, or door should be repaired or replaced before nightfall. Okay? So it's got to be a, they've got to plan this in advance. They just can't go in there and kind of leave it wide open so you don't have the security. Uh, So the next question is, does my landlord have to give me notice before changing my locks for not paying rent? And the answer is yes, as we discussed earlier. Your landlord must locally mail you a notice at least five days before changing your locks or, your landlord must hand deliver a notice or post a notice on the inside of your door at least three days before changing your locks. That notice must state in underlined or bold print that you have the right to receive a key to the new lock at any hour, regardless of whether you pay the rent you owe, okay? So it's not a pay the rent to get back in. You've got to give them the key, but this is making it so you... They're going to confront you in person for this key. The notice must also state the earliest date the landlord proposes to change the locks. Uh, so they're letting you know in advance, I'm going to do this. If you don't come talk, if you don't pay your rent, or come talk to me, um, the amount of the rent you must pay to stop the landlord from changing the locks, and the name and the street address of the individual to whom, or the location of the on-site management office at which the delinquent rent may be discussed or paid during the landlord's normal business hours. Again, it's not that you have to pay the full amount of rent, but you're going to have to go meet him to get the key to discuss it. Now, the next question is, does my landlord have to give me notice after the locks are changed? Yes. If your landlord changes your locks for owing rent, your landlord must place a written notice on your front door stating, an onsite and an on-site location where you can go 24 hours a day to obtain the new key, or a telephone number that is answered 24 hours a day that you may call to have a key delivered within two hours after calling the number. That's their choice. They don't have to deliver the key, but if they're not available, then they have to be able. You have to be able to call and go pick it up yourself within two hours. Or not or it has to be. They have to make it available within two hours. Um, the fact they also have to put in the notice the fact that the landlord must provide the new key to the tenant at any hour, regardless of whether you pay any of the delinquent rent and the amount of rent and other charges for which you are delinquent. So there's a lot of like strict rules for it, but you know, if you want your rent, this is the way to get their attention. Um, and so the next question is so all I have to do is ask for a key and my landlord must give it to me, right? The answer is yes. If your landlord has changed your locks for owing rent, you have the right to get. Back into the property just by asking. The landlord must give you a key, even if you have not paid the rent that you owe. Okay? Uh, the next question is, are there days when my landlord cannot legally change my locks if I owe rent? Yes, the landlord cannot or may not change your locks unless the landlord or landlord's agent is available to accept your rent the day the locks are changed and the day before, so they can't be you know change the locks and then disappear they you, they have to be available from the time that they change it forward and they've done these notices um, and so uh, that would be a violation of the Texas property code uh, if they don't do that all right yeah uh, the next question is um if my landlord has changed my locks, can my landlord also prevent me from entering common areas in my residential property, like the pool or the community area? So you still have a lease, but they've changed your locks, and you're like, uh, you know, I I don't want to go out tonight, I don't have a car or whatever, but I can go sleep in the laundry room <laughs> or something like that. Uh, the, the, the answer is... No, the landlord can't prevent you from going to those other common areas. That would be a violation of the Texas property code. So if you've been locked down and you want to go sit in the laundry room or do laundry all night or go sit in the pool house if you can get in there, then you can. They can't lock you out of that. Uh, The next question is, can my landlord change the locks when my family or I are inside of the property? The answer is no. If you're in there, they can't change the locks. Well, it wouldn't do them any good because you're in there. They could change the locks and uh, they can't lock it from the outside. I guess they could, but you'd still have access to it. So if a legal occupant is in the property, landlord may not change the locks. Also, a landlord may not change the locks for owing rent more than once during a rental period. So they can't Give you the lock back and then the next day go change the lock again it's just once if your rent period is every week they can change it every week if it's every month every month if you pay once a year i've had some tenants that have year annual leases where they pay once a year it's a full year that's why you don't want your leases because you don't have any control over uh the, these type of things uh particularly with commercial but this is residential we're talking about right now it applies to commercial also um Now, my landlord won't give me a key or let me into my property. Well, I say that about commercial. That's not necessarily true. Uh, Go to the Texas Property Code or be specific about commercial uh, uh, situations because commercial is different with regard to locking someone out. Residential is really tedious, though, because you can't lock somebody else out of their their house um, without following these rules. Uh, Now, my landlord won't give me a key or let me into my property. What should I do? Um, First you must be authorized by written or oral lease to live at the property. So if it's your mom's lease and you're there, you can't do anything. Your mom's the one that has to handle it. If your landlord refuses to allow you entry to your property, you can request an order from the JP court allowing you to get back in the property. Of course, you're gonna have to now go through the court, so it's not as easy as just you know jumping up and down. You're gonna have another place to stay until you get taken care of by the JP court. That order is called a writ um, of re-entry. The sworn request for this order is called a request for a writ of reentry, and you must file it with the JP court in the precinct where your property is located. Once you file it, you will then state the facts of your unlawful lockout under oath to the judge. Once you get in, and most of these hearings are done by Zoom, so it's not that difficult. But you're going to have somebody to get have to play. You will have to be able to go to a place where you have access or have cell phone accessibility, or even the library um or else you're going to have to go to the court on the day that they assign it because they are having in-person hearings again um at least in Montgomery County they are um if the judge recently believes that your landlord unlawfully locked you out of your property the judge can issue a writ of re-entry which is a piece of paper that orders you to get immediate access to your property the writ of re-entry is served on the landlord by a sheriff or a constable and they may use reasonable force to enforce the writ so if your landlord says no and they want to block the door then the sheriff can move them out of the way you know that's pretty much what's going to happen I've never seen that happen Happen. Landlords don't care that much about that. Uh, they're just trying to get your attention. That's why they change the locks. Unless they're really mad, I guess. Um, and then that's they do this at their own risk. The landlord can request a hearing on lockout within eight days after you gain re-entry. So they don't believe that you got the writ properly. The landlord can now, now go back and say, I want to tell my side of the story. Uh, the hearing will be held because that would be a um, ex parte. The judge is only asking for your... Your side of the story, if you were locked out, and now the landlord has been told you get to come back in again. And so now the landlord is going to go back in after they ask for a hearing and say their side of the story. So it's kind of a, like a tennis match; the balls going back and forth. Um, the hearing will be held within a week after the landlord's request for the hearing. Check your mail, email, and voicemail to find out if there's a hearing, so you don't miss it. Otherwise, you're going to get you're going to get kicked out. You're going to get locked out and kicked out again. Now. What about damages for my landlord failing to follow the law with regard to the lockouts? If your landlord violates the law regarding lockout, for an example, illegally locked you out, locked you out without giving you any notices, or locked you out on the um, on the wrong day, you can sue your landlord for the following things: a civil penalty of one month's rent plus a thousand dollars, your actual damages, um, if you can prove that. I don't know you. Pot of cold or had to go doctor, or, you know, whatever it was, whatever your actual damages are, you have to prove those with receipts and what have you. Your court costs, at JP courts, you're not gonna have court costs, they're gonna be really low if they are. Um, and your reasonable attorney's fees if you had to hire an attorney to help you. Um, less any rent or other some sums that you owe. So, um, the rent will be taken uh, less any rent, other other sums that you owe. So You will get this, but they can deduct what you owe off of it. So you may not get any money back, but you'll save some money in what's owed in the long run. If your landlord refuses to give you a key after locking you out, your landlord could be liable for an additional month's rent. Now, the next question. Can my landlord evict me if the landlord illegally locked me out for owing rent? Uh, Yes. While you may have claims against your landlord for damages as a result of the illegal lockout, you could still be evicted for non-payment of rent. All right, So it's kind of a there's an offset. He can evict you even if he locked you out because you owe rent. It's two different cases. That's kind of a counterclaim. Um, are there any forms that I can use? And this is once again, if you go to the Texas Justice Court Training Center or you go to Texas Law Help Um, They have forms that you can use and uh, you can ask the court for. They're Microsoft Word friendly, you usually toggle it in, they're fill in the blank forms. You don't have to just write it in. You can fill them out online. Um, a writ of re entry lets you return to your home when you have been wrongfully locked out. The application for the writ of re entry is a toggle form. You can go right into it. The writ of re entry actual order, you have to fill both of them out and file those with the court. Uh, writ of retrieval lets you back in the home to retrieve any personal property you left behind. It does not give you the right to move back in. So let's say you left some stuff in the house, or you were locked out, or you were evicted, but your stuff is still in there and you want to get to it, but you're going to be trespassing and you can't break the locked again. So you can actually go online and file an application for the writ of retrieval same thing you can fill this form out you give it to the court and then um you actually complete the writ you know the draft form which is like an order of the writ of retrieval in addition to the application you complete a notice of hearing on the application for the root retrieval. That's not an ex parte hearing. And then you fill out the form. There's another form, a bond for the root of retrieval, that the form sets the amount that you must pay in case you damage someone else's property while retrieving your own. This is going to be, I think, more of a situation where you have been evicted from, like, your parent's house and your friend's house, and they're holding your stuff hostage uh, because you didn't pay rent. They're saying you owe it, and this is what they're going to offset it. You can still get your stuff if you follow this and you go talk to the court about it. The judge is going to hear you out and give you back the stuff that you left behind. So when you move in or move out of a place, it's probably wise to take pictures of stuff that you leave behind. It could be a dog. It could be, you know, a number of things. And the first thing that comes to mind is somebody leaving their pet and. Uh, they're trying to get it back. It's a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, and they're holding the pet sort of hostage, either this re- revenge thing or they're just being vengeful, or maybe they like the puppy uh, or the dog. Uh, maybe it's a really expensive puppy or dog. You can throw one of these out and get that animal back if you convince the judge that it's yours, and you can show the payment and what have you. I expect that the counterclaim would be that it's half mine or they abandon the dog or, or something, but you can argue all that before the court. Um so uh again texas law help there's also um the uh, the, uh the, it was what would what i call that the texas the different legal aid lockout frequently asked questions there's, there's a lot of places you can go but texas law helps my favorite i think they've got a lot of really good um uh advice on there and the forms are already on there for you okay next frequently asked question is how old you have to be to get married in texas um i get this question a lot from clients that are actually old enough so it's kind of it surprises me but um, as of today uh, you may um, marry at age 14 with parental consent uh, I take that back that was before the law was changed after September 1st 2015 the law changed and you have to be 16 to um, get married. But there's some exceptions to that. If you go to court and you ask for a court order to get married sooner, uh, a lot of times the court will let you. You can get, you can also do that with parental consent. Um, you can also, if you're emancipated at an earlier age, I think like Lindsay Lowen got emancipated at like 13. Um, if you're emancipated, the court uh, or the Uh, I guess the the system, uh, legal system, recognizes you as an adult and you don't need any consent to go forward and do whatever you want to do if you're emancipated. But the age of 16 um, without any other uh, consents. Um, And that was as of a couple of years ago. Okay, next question. Uh, And we covered this last week, but since I'm going over frequently asked questions, I'll ask it again. Uh, My client wanted to know if... he says he wants to. My client wants to lease some land. Uh, can I tell the tenant uh, I require uh, I require a check and will not be able to accept cash? Uh, the tenant keeps paying in cash, and I do not like carrying around that much money. So this was kind of weird the way it's phrased. Um, I want to lease some land, so it's the landlord wanting to lease some land. the The landlord wants a check and not cash. Makes sense to me. You don't want to get robbed. Uh, if you're, if they're, if, this is what happens more often than you think. You go, uh, you're a landlord, you've met somebody to either buy something or to lease some land. They give you the money, and then they've got a setup going where somebody's going to rob you and take the money back. So it's always best to have a check. And that happens a lot when people buy cars, too. They'll say, um, uh, and this isn't exactly the same thing, but it kind of along the same line of thought, uh, somebody wants to say, I was in the tax office the other day and hearing the same thing play out that's happened over and over again. This lady bought a car from somebody that was a repo and she gave him cash for it. I don't know whether she didn't check. For ownership or what, or maybe she was lying to the clerk at the the tax place. But she was saying she didn't have any tags, she just bought it. It's her car. And the lady was telling her that it wasn't in the name of who she said, it wasn't a dealership. She had no evidence that this by what this lady was saying that she actually bought this car. And and the clerk said, I'm not going to give you any uh, tags for this because you don't have the proper documentation. They were just fighting for like 15 minutes. And this, I wasn't sure if the lady was lying or she got scammed, but. Um, it goes toward if you're buying a car and the person you're purchasing it from uh, says, bring me all the money, bring me cash, bring me a check, and a check is like cash. I wouldn't be doing that until, uh, even if it's the deal of the century, until you've verified through one of the car facts are done uh, or, because the, the, the thieves the original they, they have paperwork now that looks like the original um, certificates of title. You want to verify with Carfax, uh, for Carfax that that car was not stolen. And even if it wasn't, it doesn't appear to be stolen. Still, verify what they're telling you because I had a client recently that bought a car. The VIN number was changed. It didn't show it was stolen. Uh, they paid uh, ca- uh, with a check, but it was way under the amount that it should have been, and it ends up that the it was the VIN had been changed but the car was on a dealership lot that had that VIN number they were sold a stolen car when they looked at all the, where the VINs were located on the engine and the you know the five or six different places where they're located in the car that weren't that were permanent it was a stolen car and you're just out and when we ended up trying to find out if maybe the guy that the, the car was stolen from wanted to sell the car for some small amount. He said no. He really liked the car. He still owed $30,000 on it. He didn't want to sell it for the amount my guy paid for it, which was like, I think, maybe fifteen or 18000 And that guy ended up going to court and getting the car back, and my guy was out his full amount of money because the thieves had uh, basically sold him a stolen car, a car that they stole. And, of course, they didn't use the right names or IDs or anything. So um, buyer beware. Uh, so, uh as a general rule, to get back to whether or not you can require in a land deal uh, to be paid in cash or by or by check. As a general rule, you can satisfy your financial obligations by using cash or check. If somebody wants to pay you uh, uh, their deposit or their rent uh, by cash, they can. Most people consider cash and checks as the same thing and they usually are except for checks can be floated and sometimes they're hot so you got to be careful about two if your landlord they are, however, they're very different. Uh, only cash is legal tender that may be freely exchanged. If a person wants to pay in cash, he or she has the right to do so. in that would be to pay their rent that way. Um, in your situation, however, if the lease provides a particular method of payment, then the lease will rule. They can't pay you cash if you say you will not accept cash. If you want to be paid with a check, you should make this clear to the tenant before, you, before the lease is signed and make it a term of the lease. If you do not have a formal lease, you can give 30 days notice and make it a requ- that to to terminate the lease, and then re-enter a lease that provides that they can only pay with, um, with a check. So you can kind of get around that. But cash is legal tender, and if it doesn't say it, they can pay you in cash. Um, I don't know why they want to. They don't have any proof that they paid you if they pay you in cash. So um, so anyway, that was just it. The lease is going to rule in those situations. Now, uh, this is about creditors bugging you for money. This question goes toward creditors calling you, creditors bugging you. This would be, uh, I've seen attorneys do this. I'm um, get phone. i still getting phone calls from my um, kid's nanny that died 10 years ago where she owed money and they're still trying to track her down. And, it, you know, I tell them, I ask them who they are when they call and then I explain that. The person i are looking for died a decade ago, and uh, I don't know, you know, if they're just debt collectors that picked up a bad debt or whatever. But um, they, they, I get about, I get calls about once a year for that. But the question is, can a creditor come by and visit me at work to bug you for money? Um, and the answer is, under federal law, a debt collector cannot communicate with you at work once he knows that your employer prohibits such communication. Um, This law, however, does not apply to the creditor itself. So, uh, only the debt collector. So, in my opinion, the creditor has the same right as anyone else to visit you at work unless you let them know. Of course, the creditor does not have the right to come by and harass, abuse, or publicly embarrass you. So what you have to tell them, and I would generally ask for this information in a writer, or you know you owe the money. The problem is if you know you owe the money and you give them something in writing saying don't bug me at work, you've kind of admitted that you owe them the money. There's, um, you know, you've limited your defenses. A lot of times creditors have the wrong people. Uh, you have a similar name to somebody else or that's the argument that they use. So, um, but... The answer to this question is they can't bug you if you've told them under federal law and Texas state law that you do not want to be communicated with at work. That also goes toward – it's it's under – I think it's under the Deceptive Trade Practice Act, but it may not be called Oh, it. Oh, it's the Texas Fair Debt Collection Act. Believe it or not, there's a name for that. And I forgot which code it was under. But um, there's a, a bunch of things that debt collectors cannot do. And if you tell them not to call you at certain times, they can't call you after. I think it's 8 o'clock at night. There's a litany of things they can't do. Um, go to TexasLawHelp.com once again and, uh, and, go, uh, and put in your search engine, Texas Debt Collection, and it'll tell you what creditors can't do um here's one that just came up um recently uh it's about wills and i'm getting uh, the the uh, determination or the notice from uh station manager dick that i need to wind it up but it really really is important if your spouse had a will or set up a living trust where it would be funded after they died and maybe you don't want to you don't want to probate the will or maybe for some reason um you just don't want to go through probate uh the, the the you need to know it's really really important that if the will is different from the way the statutory um, uh, descent tables look like you don't want one of your kids uh stepkids or family members to get property but the will gives it all to save the spouse but that wouldn't be how it would be under the descent charts then you need to probate the will or it's going to go it's going to be as though no will existed at all um, we're going to go over all the ins and outs and the um, the details about how to probate a will, when you should probate a will, small, affidav- small estate affidavits, uh, the frequently asked questions about what you do when a loved one dies. And um, that will be next week. So next week, we're going to frequently asked questions about wills. I will see you then. And until um, uh, then, until next Tuesday at noon, uh, remember to serve God by serving others. We'll talk to you then.